You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Well, Merry Christmas, Mosaic. My name is Brett Milliken, one of the pastors here. As you can see, I am preaching to you from the comfort and safety of my home this morning. I was scheduled to preach this Sunday and tested positive for COVID a little earlier this week. So welcome to the Millican household as we continue on in our series for Christmas that we're calling Jesus God with us, where we've been taking a look at scripture to see what exactly the birth of Christ means for us today. Now we've seen that Jesus came to reign as a loving King, to suffer as an empathetic savior, And today, again, as God's timing would have me and my family quarantining from home, having tested positive with COVID, we're going to actually look at the fact that Jesus also came to heal. Now, not just in physical ways, but in ways that many of us may not even realize we need. So let's jump into Psalm chapter 80, verses 1 through 19. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Now, some of you are aware that a few months ago I had a little woodworking accident while using my router. No, not the thing that connects you to the internet, but a tool that spins multiple blades really, really fast for the sake of cutting along the edge of a piece of wood. You can see what it looks like in the image here. Now, as I was running a piece of wood through the blade, I noticed that it wiggled just a bit. And since I was making cabinet doors, I needed to make sure that that wiggle didn't alter the way those pieces were going to fit together just right. So what I did is I picked that piece up and I slowly rotated it to get a better look at the angle of the cut. As I did, I didn't realize my right hand was getting dangerously close to the meat grinder of a blade that was spinning really, really fast. This thing I know I feel something thudding against my fingers and it took me a second to realize what was happening. But once I did, I ran inside and told my wife to grab her keys, take me to the emergency room. I got 20 stitches. Uh, The nurse said it was a bit like trying to sew hamburger meat back together again. And even after getting the stitches out a couple of weeks later, my finger was still pretty mangled and deformed. My wife would actually laugh every time I changed out my bandages because she said my finger looked like the character Sloth from that movie, The Goonies. 
glad my pain can bring her amusement. But here I am three months later, as you can see, still healing up. But here's what's been fascinating to me about the whole ordeal. When I went to the hand specialist last month to follow up uh, because I was concerned about how jacked up my finger was looking, he actually told me something that I didn't even know was possible. He said, if, the, if I let it, the scar tissue would harden and maintain that deformed shape. But if I would keep the scar tissue soft by putting some ointment on it like Vaseline or Neosporin and then applying bandage to it with just the right amount of pressure, that I could actually reshape the scar tissue so that it would form back into a normal looking finger. And that's exactly what's happened. I've actually been able to grow the finger back out almost the quarter inch that I took off the top of it by squeezing and moistening the scar tissue. It's been fascinating to watch. And through this, God has actually been showing me something from a spiritual side as well. He's been showing me that, you know, pain comes to us in all sorts of ways and usually in moments when we're least expecting it. It's a, a sickness, a disease, a broken relationship, the loss of someone that we love, the loss of a job, maybe a global pandemic, or maybe the sting of racial injustice again. 2020 in a nutshell, isn't it? See, pain doesn't tend to send us an ETA, does it? It just kind of shows up unannounced. And when we first feel that thud in our soul, it may take a minute for us to realize what's actually happening to us. And before you know it, your life feels mangled and the recovery feels a bit like trying to sew hamburger meat back together again. See, and that pain leaves scars in our souls. It causes us to lose sensitivity to others and maybe even to the presence and the things of God. And as those scars begin to form in our soul at some point, our question we have to ask is, what do we do with the scar tissue as it forms in our soul? Do we allow it to continually harden us and, and deform our souls from the inside out? Or do we seek to keep our hearts soft and malleable so that the pressure that God has allowed to come into our lives can actually shape us and form us into who he's designed us to be? What does it take to maintain a, a soft heart and experience that kind of healing, the soul healing that Jesus came to bring us when the scar tissue begins to form? Well, the writer of Psalm 80, as we saw a man named Asaph, shows us we have to do three things in the midst of our pain in order to receive that kind of healing. He shows us that we've got to practice thanksgiving by remembering what God has done. We've got to practice mourning by asking what God is doing. And we've got to practice hoping by looking forward to what God has promised he will do. So thanksgiving, remembering what God has done. In verses one through seven, the psalmist issues his complaint, letting God know that the pressure he's feeling, the pain that he's enduring, he's crying out to God to come and save him and his people. Now the psalm was written in the midst of Israel's captivity under the Assyrian empire. The once great and powerful nation of Israel had been reduced to captivity, to oppression, to humiliation. The people were experiencing the pressure and the pain of this captivity, unable to worship Yahweh freely, unable to celebrate their holy days and festivals. They were losing their cultural identity and just crying out to God to make things as back to normal as possible. And we see in verse six, the temptation in the psalmist to let the scar tissue begin to harden as he writes, you make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. But in the midst of that complaint, the author's focus shifts in verse 8, and he begins to give thanks to God by remembering something that God had done previously. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. 
Now, as the world around the psalmist made less and less sense, as the, the pain and pressure grew more intense, almost as if catching his own heart as the scar tissue began to form, he stops and he remembers. But what does he remember? Well, he remembers another time that his people were oppressed and living in captivity under the pain of Egypt nearly 600 years earlier, a time known as the Exodus, when God stepped into a hopeless situation to miraculously deliver the Israelites, a time when God had made Israel blessing to the nations that surrounded it rather than the joke and the scorn that it had become. The psalmist is saying in the midst of his pain, I feel like, I feel like God's abandoned us, but I'm going to look in the past to remind myself that if God did not abandon us then, he's not going to abandon us now. now a few weeks ago, my son, who's in the eighth grade, had to write a paper comparing and contrasting two books that we, they were asked to read. The first is a book called The Hiding Place by Corey Tinboom. The second was a book called Night by a man named Ellie Weissel. Now, the comparisons were simple. They were both written by people who had been in prison in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. They both described the evil atrocities experienced at the hands of a systematized, oppressive regime. They both talked about the pain of starvation, the, the pressure of survival, and the haunting images of shriveled bodies and bloated corpses and the daily horrifying fear that they endured moment by moment. The contrast, however, was just as remarkable, but in a different way. Corey Timboom was a Christian who was imprisoned in, in the concentration camp for helping Jews escape the Nazis. Weissel was a Jewish boy at the age of 15 who was taken into the camps with his father. Both believed in the God of the Bible. Both had read and believed the stories of Noah and Abraham and Moses and the Exodus, Joshua's triumph over Jericho, God's delivering the Israelites from the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But one of them, in the midst of their pain, allowed the memories of what God had done in the past to keep their hearts soft, while the other one forgot all that God had done and could only stiffen and harden under his present reality. In his book, Weissel writes this, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consume my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Elie Weissel was a great man. He was the winner of the Nobel Prize in 1986. He would go on to speak out against oppression and injustice all over the world. But having grown up a devout Jewish boy, Weissel died a self-proclaimed agnostic, having lost his faith in the God of the Bible as a result of all that he experienced at the hands of such evil men. Now, you may be thinking, given the circumstances Weissel was facing, anyone would have lost their hope and their faith. That that's an insurmountable amount of pain and pressure to have to endure. And yet, Corey Timboom faced an almost identical scenario in the Ravensbrook concentration camp. And yet this was her response. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Will you carry this too, Lord Jesus? But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear. 
And that was the reason the two of us were here. While others should suffer, we were not shown, as for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call. Our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like waifs clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The darker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the Word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. In the midst of her pain, when the temptation to harden came, Corey reached back into the Word of God and allowed herself to be reminded of God's goodness and faithfulness in the past. And that reminder ensured her that if God was at work in His people then, He was also at work in her now. As I sat in the ER a couple months ago with my hand in searing pain, I was reminded of a moment years ago when I found myself in another ER room experiencing the pain of our first miscarriage. You may remember me telling the story back in January, but as I remembered God meeting me in that pain then, I turned my attention in the pain that I was feeling in my hand and I asked, I said, Lord, what do you want to show me in this pain, in this moment? To which the Holy Spirit amusingly responded, it hurts, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it hurts. Can you please make it stop? It'll stop soon enough, he said. And then he asked me a question. He said, can you imagine what it must have felt like to endure that kind of pain for nine hours while hanging on a nail? Instantly, I was connected to the sacrificial love of God, his willingness to send Jesus to do for me what I was incapable of doing for myself. Now, it didn't take the pain in my hand away, but it did repurpose it. It turned it into an agent of healing in my heart rather than a reason to harden my heart towards God or others and complain about my circumstances. So listen, God does not cause our pain. He, he didn't cause the Egyptians to enslave the Israelites. He didn't cause the Nazis to set up death camps. He didn't cause our miscarriages or my accident with my router. He didn't give me COVID. And he didn't cause the sickness or relationship trauma or financial struggles or loss that you may be experiencing today either. And yet here it is. And if we will allow the pain that we're feeling to remind us of God's faithfulness in our lives in the past, then the pressure that we're feeling will begin to shape us and heal us at a deeper spiritual level as God uses it to mold us into who he's made us to be. So the painful experience isn't something that we choose, but our response to it is. So we can let our circumstances define who God is to us, or we can allow who God is to redefine our circumstances. One will harden us, the other will soften and reshape us. As the old saying goes, the same sun that melts the snow also hardens the clay. However, we can't just live in the past and ignore our present pain. To do so is to deny reality and is just as dangerous to our hearts as not being thankful about what God has done in the past. Which brings us to the second point the author of Psalm 80 shows us. We not only need to be thankful in remembering what God has done, we also need to learn how to mourn our loss by asking God what he is doing. See, after remembering what God did in Egypt, the psalmist quickly returns to his place of pain. He says, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. You see, when it comes to pain, we need to remember what God has done 
but we also can't ignore what God is doing. We have to learn how to face our pain head on. And we do that not by ignoring it, nor by over-spiritualizing it by quoting Romans 8.28 and simply dismissing the very real pain that we're experiencing. The psalmist says, God, you made us a vine that was meant to be to bring nourishment and healing to the nations, but instead your people are being ravaged, they're being taken advantage of. Lord, what's going on? Why are you allowing this? In other words, Lord, life doesn't seem to be going according to plan, and I feel completely disoriented and unsure of what to do and where to turn. And this is why I love the Psalms. The writers of the Psalms were not afraid to come to God with their frustrations, their complaints, their questions. Like we saw with Job last week, God invites us into those moments to ask those questions to mourn the loss we experience in our pain and our brokenness. But see, as 21st century Americans, this seems foreign to us, doesn't it? We don't like having to deal with discomfort of pain and loss. We want to fix it. We want to solve the problem and move on as quickly as possible, don't we? We tend to see suffering and sadness as an interruption to our American dream. We feel like it's a burden and a weakness. And if we accept the fact that something may be wrong, then that must mean something is wrong with us. And if something is wrong with us, then somehow we failed. We've fallen behind in the race and somehow we've lost value. But what if mourning was actually a good thing? What if allowing ourselves to feel the full weight of our sorrow and the the real sting of our pain was not only not a weakness, but was actually something that brought us strength. I mean, didn't Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? So what is the blessing that comes with our mourning? Well, I actually think there are two blessings. Number one, it helps us gain a better understanding of the heart of God. See, when we suffer loss in some capacity, we instantly ask why. It's like we inherently recognize that the brokenness of the moment we're experiencing is not how it was supposed to be. We begin to question how God could possibly betray us this way. How could one who is supposed to love us so much possibly sell us down the river like this? Ah, but couldn't God ask the same question of us? Or do we suppose that the brokenness of the world frustrates and pains us more than the God who made it to be perfect in the first place? See, the frustration that you feel, the loss, the sorrow is but a glimpse, a, a sliver of how God feels over the brokenness of the world that he made. The injustice, the betrayal, the death. As much as we want and need others to empathize with us in our moments of pain, our pain actually gives us a chance to empathize with God in his, to connect with God in his loss, to go a little deeper in knowing his heartache. And listen, there is no greater blessing than getting a deeper knowledge of the heart of God. Secondly, it helps us gain a better understanding of our own hearts as well. Listen, if 2020 has shown us anything, it's that when we get squeezed like a tube of toothpaste, what's inside eventually comes out. And this year I've seen both in myself and in people I know love Jesus, all kinds of stuff other than faith, hope, and love coming out of our lives. And listen, we're people who back in February would have said, man, my confidence and my hope is in Christ. My identity is rooted in who he says I am. And yet as fear crept in, as isolation overwhelmed, as racial and political issues once again confronted us, all kinds of other identities and hopes begin to come out of our hearts, begin to ooze out of our souls. And as hard as it is to have to look ourselves in the mirror like that, it's actually a great blessing if we'll see it rightly. See, when pain squeezes out the idols in our hearts, it actually gives us the chance to more accurately assess what's really going on inside. 
It's like Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See, when we see that when we see that we should feel heartbroken over it and that's what it means to mourn to let the pain of our reality hit us square in the chest to let it highlight our weakness and our need for help in that area after losing his wife to cancer c.s lewis wrote this about his own heart in his book a grief observed he said you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you it's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? See, 2020 has shown many of us that maybe we've been trusting in something other than Jesus to save us in the midst of our pain and loss. And when we mourn that, we feel heartbroken over that. It softens those scars and the love of Christ comforts us and the pressure that we're feeling begins to form us and shape us into who God is calling us to be. But when we run from that and we allow those scars to harden in light of that truth, then our hearts remain malformed and our lives and relationships fall apart as resentment and bitterness consume us. So rather than running from our pain and weakness, we have to learn to sit in it and ask God what it is He's wanting to reveal both to us and through us in the midst of our present moment. If we can do that, then healing will come. The healing of our hearts, the healing of our intimacy with God and with others. The spiritual healing that we all need will come. And this is where the psalmist's third point becomes so vital to understand because it's virtually impossible to see the healing possibilities in our present if we don't ultimately have a hope in what God has promised to do in the future. Verses 14 to 18, he says, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. After mourning his pain, the psalmist immediately moves into a place of hope, not only because of what God has done in the past, but because of what God has promised to do in the future. And why do I say that? Well, it's because these two uniquely Jewish phrases that the psalmist uses here, the man of your right hand and the son of man who you've made strong for yourself. In the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the the right hand of God, or sometimes referred to as the arm of God, is used to refer to God's redemptive power, his ability to save, his blessing. But it's also a prophetic meaning when referring to the man who is at the right hand of God. We see in Psalm 110, verse 1, David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, this is a reference to the Messiah, the one the Jews believe would come to liberate them from their oppressors, who would come to heal all of their pain and make things right again. Likewise, all through the Old Testament, the phrase son of man or sons of men is used in many different contexts as well. But there's also a prophetic meaning to that phrase, the son of man, when it talks about the Messiah. For example, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel writes this. He says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the author of Psalm 80, in the midst of his pain and frustration, not only looks back to God's faithfulness in the past, not only seeks God's purpose in the present, but he holds fast to the hope of the promise of what God said he will do in the future by sending one who will come to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to heal all who have been oppressed. So the psalmist is encouraging himself by looking forward to the one who one day is going to make sense of all the pain and the pressure that he was currently feeling. And who is this one whom God would send? Well, in Matthew 26, we read this account. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? In his answer, Jesus combines these two messianic identifiers into one response. The priest says, are you the promised Messiah? And Jesus simply replies, I am. And now catch this. The writer of Psalm 80 was able to let the pain and the loss he was experiencing shape him into someone who reflected the heart of God because he remembered God's faithfulness in the past. He mourned the loss in his present and he held tight to God's promises for the future of the Messiah. And here's the point for you and me. His future is our past. The Messiah he was looking forward to coming is the Messiah whose birth we will celebrate this coming week. So over 2,000 years ago, Jesus did come as a human baby born in a stable, placed in a manger, and he grew in perfect faithfulness and obedience to God. He suffered everything that you and I would ever suffer. He was tempted in every way that you and I would ever be tempted, and yet his heart remained soft and malleable the entire time. And just hours before facing the greatest pain that he would ever face, the greatest mangling and scarring the human heart could ever experience. At the point of anguish to where he was actually sweating drops of blood, as Jesus faced the cross and all that it would mean, he remembered what God had done in eternity past. He embraced the pain and the loss of part of what, of part of what God was doing in that present moment. And the Bible says, for the joy set before him, what he knew awaited him on the other side of that pain. He set his face like flint and prepared his heart to endure the pain of the cross. And all this enabled Jesus in that present moment of pain and pressure to cry out, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And that unconditional, sacrificial, unbreakable love and deliverance isn't just something God has promised to give us someday in the future. No, for us, the Messiah, the liberation, the freedom is something he's already done before we were ever born. And so now in the midst of the mangling and the, the tearing of our lives, what we've all experienced over this year, we can remember God's faithfulness in sending his son. We can mourn our loss in light of the fact that the pain we're currently feeling is a pain that points us to what Christ was willing to go through on our behalf. And we can hold on to the hope that Jesus has promised us that someday he's going to heal all this brokenness and make all things new. And we have an empty grave to guarantee that promise. And if we can 
hold on to that promise. If we can do that in our pain and our loss, if we can keep our hearts soft under the ointment of God's love and faithfulness and the pressure that you're feeling this year will mold you and shape you into who God has made you to be, a reflection of his love to the world around you. Jesus is with us to heal. Not just the outward physical healing that many of us want and need, but the greater inward heart healing that we all need. A heart that's connected to God's love and God's will. That healing may come in the form of an offense from something that someone said. It it may come with a positive COVID test or it may come through a couple of mangled fingers. It's not gonna come in the way that you think it will, I promise you. But then again, neither did Jesus, did he? No one expected a baby lying in a manger. And yet that was God's greatest gift to us, his greatest act of healing. Maybe, just maybe, the pain you're feeling today and the healing that it will bring if you let it is God's gift to you this Christmas as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your son or the demonstration of your faithfulness and of your love for us. And Lord, 2020 has been a hard year. Lots of pain, lots of loss, lots of pressure. And Lord, the temptation in all of our hearts is to begin to stiffen, to begin to harden, to begin to shut things down, to begin to desensitize ourselves to what you're wanting to do and to the people that you've placed around us. So Lord, I'm asking by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus and by your grace, that you would soften our hearts with your love. Lord, help us remember your faithfulness in the past. Lord, help us to mourn the losses that we've experienced in our present. And let us not forget that Jesus will come again to make all things new. As we hold tight to those three things, Lord, may the pressure that you're allowing to come into our lives this year shape us, mold us, and conform us and to the image of your Son, that when the world sees us, they would see the amazing love that Christmas represents, the love of Christ come to save us. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.